You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hi, I'm Doc Sloan, and I've never had a bad day in my life. Welcome to our show, titled I've Never Had a Bad Day. Uh, in the studio with me today is my wife of 52 years, Sharon, and my daughter, Stacy. And uh, Stacy will lead off and uh, tell you about our show today. Every week we come in, we try to think of something new to talk about, and sometimes we build on things that we talked about the week before. And on the way here, I was hoping that we would talk about um, the idea of it's possible. And we might have even mentioned this last week at the end of the podcast, talking about um, Les Brown and his amazing career and how he overcame um, so much. He was adopted. He was a minority. He overcame a speech impediment and all these other things and really reached incredible, incredible um, goals for himself. And he has this great talk that he does called It's Possible. One of the things that I love about that is that I actually have um, on my body tattooed everything is possible. So I believe that that is um, true, not just for Les Brown and not just but for me, but for everybody, that everything is possible. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Thanks, Stacey. I think I have mentioned, I know I have mentioned Les Brown before, and I think I did tell the audience um, about 20 years ago. I had the privilege of meeting Les on a airplane coming back, the red eye coming back from California. We were flying out of John Wayne Airport or LAX. I'm not sure which it was. I'd been out there for playing a golf tournament. And I got on the airplane, and I was fortunate enough to be moved up to first class. It was actually hardly anybody on. This is back in the good old days with the airlines <laughs> when they used to fly empty a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And um, truly, they were the good old days. And um, – in, in first class was Les Brown sitting across the aisle from me. So before we had uh, – they closed the door and turned on the seatbelt signs, I got up and introduced myself to him. He was extremely kind and very, very friendly. And um, I told him who I, that I knew – told him who I was and told him that I knew who he was. And he couldn't have been nicer. I would have loved to have sat with him for the five-hour flight. It wasn't actually five hours because of the tailwinds, but the long flight back – but I wasn't going to ask myself or invite myself in the seat next to him. But we had a very nice conversation. I just remember meeting him, and it was uh, it was very, very nice. Uh, it's a, I wouldn't say it was the highlight of my life, but it is a moment in my life that I really appreciated being able to meet him in person. Mm-hmm. It's great to know, too, that somebody is really like that instead of this persona that they put on. That, exactly. You know, so he's exactly. consistently a really nice person, consistently really genuine. Right. That it's not some branded uh, package that he's made for himself, yeah, absolutely. but, that's but true. that he really is a genuine person. Because you mm-hmm. wonder so many times if that's actually the case, mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's really true. Well, yeah, again, for all those that may be listening to this podcast today or whenever, um, I really highly recommend you go to YouTube and uh, look up Les Brown, It's Possible. You just, just go to your phone and say, YouTube, Les Brown, It's Possible. And they have his speech there. It's in a 13-minute format. And it's also in a 56-minute format, which was the largest, I mean, the longest speech. I think they take highlights in the 13-minute one. And, and, of course, the whole speech is on the uh, the message, the talk. It was with, I think it was for PBS. It's really entertaining, riveting, informative, funny, um, a, a lot of wisdom in it. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those concepts today. So Les Talks, he starts out with the fact that um, – he said, I want to motivate you folks to have a dream for your life. He said, but he said, I'm not going to say to you, you can have this dream, everything you want, you can decide right now and have it. 
what I want you to say with me, and I want you folks to think about this too, is that you don't have to say, I'm going to do X. I'm going to make $10 million. I'm going to swim in the English Channel. I'm going to make a difference in my, uh, in my local politics. I'm going to run for office. What he, what he was saying is that it's possible. Let's, let's just all agree that whatever your dream is, whatever your goal is, just say it's possible. That's not saying I'm going to do it. That requires a commitment. And you, you, you eventually have to get to that. But the reality is, at first, you have to start with small steps. We crawl before we walk. We walk before we run. And Les really does a really great job of leading the audience to that um, uh, term, uh, term, uh, the conclusion. This is the word I'm looking for. To that conclusion, to find out that it is possible. And um, he was saying uh, a good point he made on the tape was he said, you know, he said um, prior to um, Roger Bannister and those again of you out in Radio Land or Podcast Land may not know who Roger Bannister was, but he was the the young man who broke the four minute mile barrier for running. And prior to that, for twenty thousand years or whatever, pick a number, nobody had ever run a mile in less than four. No human being had ever run a mile in less than four minutes. And then everybody said, well, it's impossible for a human to run that fast. It could never be done. And then Roger Bannister did it. Since that time, according to Les Brown, over 20,000 people incredible. Right, have, run the four, have broken the four-minute mile barrier. And even some high school students have done that. Mm-hmm. And what he points out is that once they knew it was possible, if it was possible for Roger Bannister, it's possible for me. So you had these 16, 17-year, 18-year-old high school track students or, or, or uh, students, I guess, uh, track competitors getting on that track. In their mind, they already knew they it was possible for them to break the four-minute barrier. And guess what? They did. And that's really as simple as it gets, except it's very hard to do. Uh, it requires a lot of work and dedication. Mm-hmm. And that people really need to see it because right. – what I think we don't learn until our minds are somehow open to it um, by chance or by meeting someone or hearing something like this is that the mind is endlessly capable. The mm-hmm. mind is infinite possibility. So that's one of the things that Deepak Chopra talks about all the time is that you are infinite possibility. Because you are awake, because you are alive, everything is possible because you got up this morning and – moved through the day, everything was possible for you. But I think culture and sort of the machine wants us to not believe that. They don't want us to believe that everything is possible because what amazing, incredible things could happen if everybody woke up and decided that everything was possible. And it's sad that not many people are are introduced to that. Um, But if you think about it, though, everybody is born knowing that. You're born as a child believing that everything is possible. Yeah, you don't, totally you don't know the difference. You're, you're totally curious, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're open to the idea, total love, no judgments, no isms. Mm-hmm. And doesn't he talk about that? It's him or somebody else talks about how at a certain point um, in the human development that your mind has been told no so many times mm-hmm. that then that's where things really start to change where – um, I don't remember at what age it is. I should do more research on this and and brush up on it. But well, I think that can be true at any age. Yeah, <laughs> That's the sad yeah. part about it, or the or the or the great part about it. Mm-hmm. Sad or great. Yeah, and the, just the idea though that you know we we're always telling kids no, 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 don't do this, don't do that. But um, you know, 
they come into the world believing that everything is this clean slate and that everything is is completely possible. There's the imagination. There's the limitlessness of what they can create and what they can come up with. And at a certain point, whether it's the traditional education system or whatever is happening with domesticated adults, um, you sort of shy away from that idea that all these things are possible. Right. Well, and they're the real dream stealers is mm-hmm. what happens. Uh, and some people never get out of the gate. They never they never really accomplish their dream. Matter of fact, you know, Les Brown tells a story where I, I think I'm repeating myself now from a couple of podcasts ago when he was at school and he told – I'm sure I'm repeating this, but it's worth repeating. And he was in school and they were talking about their dream, uh, their vocation. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like third grade or fifth grade. Very young, it was elementary school, and uh, he wrote down that he wanted to be a, uh, a disc jockey, a radio announcer, a TV personality, and um, he had a speech impediment, and, and he'd been uh, labeled educationally uh, retired uh, student, and um, he was in special classes. As Stacy mentioned, he was adopted. He was actually a twin. Uh, he was uh, his brother's name, I believe, is Lester. And his name was, of course, his name was Leslie, and there's Lester. And they were born on the floor, uh, on a kitchen floor mm-hmm. of a Miami tenement home or tenant home, and um, abandoned by their mother, never knew his father, and he was uh, had an adoptive mother. And she uh, raised these, these, this incredible family, and, and Les Brown was really one of the incredible kids that came out of that family. Mm-hmm. And um, he does talk about that. Yeah, that when he came home, his, wasn't it his adopted father told him, don't ever right. let somebody tell you that you right. can't be right. He wouldn't know his real be. father, yeah. right? And he said, what would you do today in school? And he said, I I, I wrote this this dream out, my, my goal. And, and he said, well, why is it all crumbled up or something like that? And he said, well, my teacher told me I could never do that. And he mm-hmm. said, look at me. He said, listen to me. He said, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do something. Yeah. And it was really very powerful. And there's so much of that, which is really, you know, so heartbreaking if you think about it. I was um, two weeks ago reading on a Facebook group. There's a group that I'm in called Bright Line Eating and this woman named Susan Bright Line Eating. And Susan Pierce Thompson, she's a neuroscientist and she wrote this book about um, the power of the brain and um, addictive behavior. And she wrote a book called Bright Line Eating. And so from this book, there's been all of these face group, Facebook groups and social media groups that have started. And what's interesting about it is that like all of these people, they're all there with these different goals. Some people want to lose 15 pounds. Some people are trying to lose 150 pounds. And in fact, a friend of mine has lost 100 pounds using this um, this Bright Line Eating community. And so you read these posts and this woman – wrote that she had a goal to lose 150 pounds and she was going to commit to this new lifestyle, not thinking about it as a diet, but thinking about it as a lifestyle. And she wasn't going to be eating certain things. And she wanted her family to support her in that because obviously food is such a community social event. There's a lot that's um, traditional and you know you're sure you're dependent on so many family people and friends and family fun. friends socializing and then there's you know family traditions and then there, there can be guilt and all this emotional stuff but so she had decided to share with her family that her goal was to lose 150 pounds and she said that when she told her mom at her mom scoffed and said 
why are you even doing that? You're never going to be able to do that. And I don't even know this woman. I think she's from like Australia. And my heart just sank for her because I thought, why would anybody say that to somebody else? Mm -hmm. Like, why why would you do that? I mean, it kind of comes back to the if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But why would you want to crush someone like that? And what was really cool about it was that, you know, this woman – didn't let that stop her. And she went on and she made this Facebook post. And there were hundreds of people who mm-hmm. either liked it and, you know, liked the idea that she was going to keep going and that she was going to try, even though somebody very close to her tried to discourage her. And then hundreds more people telling her, don't listen to that. You can do it. Right. And it's just amazing to me, though, that that the negative forces of other people, even so close to you as your own family, it's it's really sad and that you have to be able to overcome that. And if you can't find the support that you're looking for from your family or your friends or your colleagues, then go find some other people. Those are not your people. Right. But don't let anybody tell you yeah, that. Les Brown says in that his possible speech where he says, you're going to have your dream. He says, and other people are going to try to steal your dream. They're going to tell you you can't have your dream. And they're going to say, what? Like he said when he wanted to get on public TV and, and mm-hmm. do public speaking and get on channel, uh, well, 56 in our area, but PBS, and do a speech about it's possible. And they said, Les, look, Les, you can't be on TV. He said, well, why can't I be? There's see all these other people on TV. <laughs> and he goes, well, you, you don't have any credentials, man. You, you've never been to college and you've never done this and you've never done that. And these people have all these credentials and they're lawyers and they're doctors and they're public speakers. And he said, well, man, what's that got to do with anything? He said, well, you, 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 you got to be, you got to face reality. Lester, mm-hmm. wake up. And he said, you know, listen to me. And this is what Lester says to the audience. He says, listen to me. He says, what other people think of you and your dream is none of your business. Right. Let them have their own opinion of you. All that really matters is what you think of you. And that's really true. It it's is. a little bit more than that, but it's a place that you have to start at. Because if you're going to be worried about what other people are going to say to you, what you can't do, they, they're never going to tell you what you can do. They're always mm-hmm. going to tell you what you can't do. And when that, and when that, when you hear that stuff coming in, be polite, shrug it off, and move away from those people, and don't go back for a second helping. Right. Right. That's, yeah. Get as far. Don't don't walk. Right. Isn't right, that the right. the cliche? Don't walk. Run away from people like that because it's it's your very survival that's dependent on it, and right. that this is your whole life, and this is all of your possibility, and we like to think that other people limit us. This is the unpopular. No truth, right? right? Like we like to think that other people dictate and limit where we are and that we are victims. That's sort of like the default state. But we are really the people who limit everything that happens. Right. right. As a matter of fact, I'm going to cover the four points that Les covers in that speech and it says it's possible. It's necessary that you have your dream. It's you. And that's mm-hmm. what he gets to where you're just talking about, Stacey. That's his third point in the speech or the message and that's you. It's not about what other people do. And your success is not related to other people. Other people can help you and bless you and favor you. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you've got to do the work. Right. You've got to have the dream. You've got to have the grit. You've mm-hmm. got to have the gumption. You've got to have the staying power. You've got to have the faith. You have to have the belief. And those are all things that can be learned. They're not, they're not innate to us all the time, especially mm-hmm. when we've grown up in a negative world. But you can learn. There's just skills. That's all mm-hmm. they are. They're really skill sets and yeah. their mindsets. And just with practice – I remember a few years ago, I was watching um, 
the own network. So when Oprah finished her show on regular um, syndicated television, she started her own network, Oprah Winfrey Network. And she has this show called Super Soul Sunday. And on Sundays, she brings in all of these thought leaders, authors, uh, people like Deepak Chopra or Joel Osteen. Or, I mean, there's just hundreds of them. And they're mm-hmm. really, really cool to listen to these people come in and Every topic is different. And she had one gentleman on named Adi Ashanti, and he was a Buddhist monk. And he was talking about how he realized at some point in his life that um, we're in this perpetual state of victimhood. And it feels very natural, even though it feels very bad, to feel like a victim. Eventually, you get so used to feeling that way that it does feel good. It's like your natural state. And he said that When he realized that blaming other people for his pain or his suffering or his unhappiness was really like handing them the keys to his happiness and letting them take them and put them in their pocket forever. Mm -hmm. And that not only do you give away all of this personal freedom and personal power Because of something that somebody did to you one time or maybe a handful of times or maybe something that somebody didn't even do to you but you were sort of a a bystander of it, that when you take your happiness and you deliberately give them the keys to your happiness, they walk around with that for the rest of their life and Mm -hmm. you've literally given all of that control away and then you're stuck. He says, you know, then I'm stuck. I have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Because I can't even get my own keys back. I've just given that away. I'm here. I've got nowhere to go. And then I'm in for this perpetual suffering. And I really, really liked the idea of that because there are so many times that we think, well, of course this person is doing this or this or this because this awful thing happened to them. Their parents – Les Brown, his right. mother abandoned him as right. a newborn on a kitchen floor or whatever the circumstances were. Or he was – abused or, you know, any of the millions of ugly, ugly stories that there are. And we say, well, naturally, that's that's why they are that way. And that's, of course, they would feel that way. And, and there is truth to that. But staying in that gives that original incident all of the power. And we don't realize that we're even doing it, which is was something that I never forgot. It was this really, really interesting um, conversation that they had throughout the podcast. You, and you can listen to it. It's on Oprah Super Soul Sunday mm-hmm. with Adi Ashanti. It's just the idea of putting the keys to your happiness in somebody else's pocket. Um, I like – thank you. And I like that part where Les says it's you. And, he, and I just saw an article uh, in USA Today. I believe it was yesterday uh, in the money section. It had to do with a guy by the name of Carol. It was his last name, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. Or, but he's a car concierge. Hmm. And he lives in Macomb Township. He's a local, uh, even though USA is a national publication that had to do with somebody here in Michigan. Lived in Macomb Township. He'd been working in this automotive dealer for eight years, loved his job, was really good at it, and he got fired. And they told him, we're not firing you because you're doing a bad job. We're we're, we're firing you to save money. So he was devastated. He came home to his wife. They have three children. And she said she didn't want to show him the fear that was going through her, her mind and her heart. Because she was a stay-at-home mom of young children, and um, but they had this great life. I don't know what they made, but if, if she was able to stay at home and they had a nice life, let's just assume he was making six figures, perhaps, and it must have been working very hard. And it's possible, and it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, um, 
And he was devastated. He was just, his his feet were just knocked out from underneath him. He just didn't know what he was going to do. And then, and I like this part too, Stacey, and everybody that's listening, Les talks about this. If you don't move, life will move Move on on you. you. And it'll it'll cause you to do things that you never thought you could do, or it'll cause you to fail in ways you never dreamed you would fail. But in this case, this gentleman, last name Carol, um, a guy called. He was now he's out of a job. He's devastated. He, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He had health care. He had his kids uh, in school. I don't know if they were private school, but he you know he had, he had health care. He had a job. He had an income. Stay at home mom, a mortgage, car payments, and so forth. All the stuff that goes along with the trappings of the responsibility of being a father and, and a parent and a breadwinner. And uh, he said that in the article, it said that a guy called him up and he wanted to buy a car. And it must have called him on his cell phone. They didn't explain that. But he got a hold of him and said, yeah, I guess he dealt with him before. And he got uh, a call from this guy and he wanted to buy a car. And uh, this Mr. Carroll re- related to him that, well, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't sell for that company. I'm, I'm not at that dealership any longer. And the guy said, well, well, I don't care whether you're there or not. I like the way you treated me, and I want to buy a car. So he he looked at now again life moving on him, mm-hmm. and he got his he got this idea. Well, I don't necessarily need that dealership to find this guy a car. He said because he's busy, and he just, he said and the guy said I'm I'm too busy to go out and buy a car, mm-hmm. and uh, and people are and and they, they don't like to people no, don't like oh to oh boy this. did that article cover that I wish I, <laughs> I I wish I had saved the article. And brought it in the studio today because it was really it has some really good points about what's going on in the dynamics of the car uh, dealership world. Mm-hmm. They are finding that um, I think it was I'm going to get I'm going to say this is probably an exaggeration, but I'm going to say 75 percent of all customers, or maybe it was 90, 90 percent of the people that deal with car car dealerships call it a negative um, mm-hmm. a, a, a transaction mm-hmm. in, in their life. And they, mm-hmm. they wish it could be more positive. One, one thing they want is they want the car to be brought to them. They want the, the, the closing to be seamless. They want it to take less than an hour. They want to trade in, be picked up and brought in. Um, it's just all kinds of things like that. And that's why he calls himself a concierge. Mm-hmm. And so he got this guy a Jeep or something. And then a word of, then this guy told, uh, I think it was a, a, a union rep, as I recall, uh, the gentleman that called him. And so he turned him on to his sister, his mother, a bunch of family friends. And he sold him uh, a GMC Savannah, a Jeep Cherokee. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, GMC Jeep Cherokee um, and a Ford, I think, F-150. And he, he started selling these brands. And all the dealerships were looking at this guy like, well, we don't have to pay for his desk. We don't have to pay for his phone. We don't have to pay for his health care. All we got to do is give him a commission when he brings us a customer. Why wouldn't we let this gentleman bring us customers? And they don't care that he's cross-pollinating and selling other brands. Well, the whole point of the story, without making this whole show about that story, was that he started his own concierge company, and he's thriving. And he's just doing really well, filling a need and a niche for the public out there that's never been filled before to this level. Or if it has been, it's, it hasn't been done very much. Now it's going and growing. And right. again, life is moving on you, on him, on the industry, and people's, people's um, wishes, demands um, – expectations, a better word, uh, are changing so drastically that it's not the car dealerships that you're, in this case, Stacy, your grandfather, my father, used to sell for a Ford dealership in Farmington. And um, it's no longer that, that that's not the, the model anymore, right. or at least soon to be. Well, in, the whole, in that whole area, the whole world is changing, right? Like the idea that we're not even going to be driving the cars ourselves and mm-hmm. the cars are going to be automated and 
maybe you don't own your own car and it drives around and picks other people up and just all of the stuff is is so different and I'm sure the automotive companies are pivoting um, to try to to meet that change. I know um, a colleague of mine, his dad is a car dealership owner and um, to hear them talk about how like the margins are not what they used to be. Correct. So right. the idea, you know, you read these articles about how you go in to buy a car and you try to you know, beat them up on the price because you know it's super inflated. That's not the way that it is anymore. No. They don't make that money on, on the cars anymore. Right. It sounds like they make it on the financing now, which is a, as a matter separate fact, idea. It's funny you say that because I called uh, a, a guy in California about a car I was looking at a while ago. And um, he had this on the internet. We bought cars for our company on the internet, but usually your brother John handles that. And I don't get into it. So I, I found this car on the internet. I called the guy up and he had had it advertised for one price on one mm-hmm. uh, site, but on another site, it was $2,000 less, same car. And so when I brought that up to him later after I'd done some, I'd done some research, he said, um, well, he said, that was only a one-day sale. I said, oh, really? I said, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, right. said, I wouldn't respect you if you didn't say otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I said, the reality is, is my dad used to be in the car business. And I get it, but uh, and I'm not saying this anything by out there in podcast land. I'm not uh, denigrating car dealers. People sell what they sell, and they and he did really have a sale going on that particular day on that website apparently. So I'm not calling him a liar. I'm not at all doing that. But I'm just saying they're out to sell the car for what they can get it for, right. it's, it's, and it's a used car. So nonetheless, because you were talking about you, new cars, mm-hmm. Stacy, and this was a used car, and um, so. What he said to me though was, I said, "Well, I'll give you what you're saying, what you're advertising for the the low price on the sale day." That was says, "Well, the problem is that you're not my dream customer." Oh, that's what he said to me, and I, I wasn't offended. And he laughed, and I laughed. I said, "Well, I said you're not my dream dealership." I said, <laughs> "You're in California." I said, "You're a seven hundred mile plane, a seven hundred dollar plane ticket away from me. Just come out and see this car, <laughs> and then if I do buy the car, I got to pay thirteen hundred dollars to have it shipped back to Michigan." I said, so you're not my dream dealership either. But I said, I, he said, well, yeah, but he said, if I have somebody coming off the street here in California, he was down by uh, Newport Beach. He said, I can sell them back-end financing. I can sell right. them the th- anti-theft system. I can sell them. And he mentioned about five different things he'd like to add on to the car mm-hmm. to take that $20,000 car and turn it into a $25,000 car. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, what's changing. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to find other ways to get what they call IPTs, items per ticket, right? and get that get that number up for yeah. profitability. And that idea of life moving on you, so similar to what Robert Kiyosaki talks about, like life pushes everybody around, mm-hmm. right? Like, And at first it's just a little a little tap and mm-hmm. then it's a maybe a harder tap and a nudge. And then it's a shove, right. and then it's a punch in the face. Like Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> it'll That's punch good. you in the face. Right. So you hope that you learn it at the nudge. You hope that you're right. awake and you're paying attention and you're um, able to pivot at the nudge. But sometimes we all have to get punched in the face. And there's all these different ways of, of talking about that idea. But um, – the idea is just being open to this possibility. You said that he had four other things that he talked about in his 
possibility. Well, the four top things was it's possible. Yeah. First of all, you got to realize it's possible for you. Mm-hmm. And then once it's possible, you have to realize it's necessary for you. And if you don't realize that it's really necessary, if you say, okay, it's possible, and you don't see the the value or the or the real importance, that's uh, probably more, more important than the value. The importance of that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Until you realize that, You'll just stay where you are saying, well, that's possible. I could do that. It's like a, a dream. You know, a, a dream is a goal. A dream is a, I mean, I'm sorry, a goal is a dream with a deadline. Mm-hmm. A dream is nothing but a dream. But if you put a, a time on it and you, a, a, like a time stamp on it or a, a, a date on it, uh, a, a number of pounds you want to lose, you want to quit smoking, whatever your goal is, and you make that your goal, now you've got a deadline to, to work toward. That's why it's necessary. And if you don't realize or you don't make up your mind that it's necessary, then you won't be able to achieve it because then you won't move to the next step, which is it's you, which you already covered, where you said, uh, the gentleman that said, if you give your, your victimhood away or you become a victim and you give everybody else the power to control you and you give the keys to your freedom away. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing, or the fourth thing, right, is, I'm sorry, the fourth thing he talks about is it's hard. <laughs> and he said, this is where people get stuck. He said, right. because it is possible. They, they Everybody can say it's possible. That's easy. That really, Anybody can, all of us can say, well, that's possible. I could do that. But then you say, okay, it's necessary that I do that. And they say, okay, it's up to me. If it's a B, it's up to me. And I can do that. And I'll do that. But then you start, well, then you said, Stacey, what, what did Mike Tyson say? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's hard. <laughs> yeah. That's where it becomes hard because mm-hmm. they got a plan. It's possible. It's necessary. It's me or you. How do you want to couch that? And then you say, okay, I'm ready to go. And then you get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. And that's where the hard kicks in. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the difficulty is of achieve, achieving our goals because once we realize how difficult it is and we realize we're in pain, mm-hmm. then you have to say to yourself – is what I want worth the pain? Right. That's the real issue. Mm-hmm. Because everybody has goals and dreams. Everybody does. Every, some people say, well, I, if I just, if I got, if I had $100,000, I'd be happy. I met a lady the other day that, um, this is something, uh, I, I'm not going to quantify it because there's things that I don't want to say here. Um, I met a lady the other day and she came up to me and she was so happy. I didn't meet her. I saw her. I, I knew her. And she came up to me and said, Doc, she said, you won't believe what happened to me. I said, what happened to you? And she said, I was in the Greek Town Casino. And he says, I was playing the penny slots, and I won $10,000 in the oh penny gosh. slots. I said, well, that's great. I'm not going to mention her name. I, I called her by name, and I said, that's great. I said, congratulations. I said, God bless you. It couldn't happen to that nicer person. You deserve it. And she does. She's, she has COPD, and her husband's been sick, and they've been, has, they've been having some real challenges. And she says, oh, my Lord. She said, I, I went to the window, and I cashed it in. And she said, and I said, take out my taxes. And they gave me $7,400 in $100 bills. And she said, I've Um, never had that much money ever in my hand at one time in my entire life. mm -hmm. And she's not a teenager. This, Of course, she wouldn't be a teenager, but she's not as old as I am. But What did she do with it? I didn't ask her. My wife just asked, what did she do with it? And I, I didn't ask her. I hope she walked out. Well, she did. She, she said, "Yeah, she I said, hope she, yeah, she did. She out. did walk out. She said, yes. I went. I went. I had a, a security escort me out. Mm-hmm. I got in my car, and she says, I was so shocked, and I was so nervous, and so excited that I just mm-hmm. sat in my car for 15 minutes. I mm-hmm. couldn't believe what happened to me. And that's when she said, I've never had that much money sure. ever in my entire life in my hand. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that 
when that happens to us, when, when, when things like that happen to us and we've never experienced anything like that, then we don't realize that what is possible. Right. And I don't mean to go out and buy your – go start playing slots in a casino and right. I don't mean to go out and spend your entire paycheck on lottery tickets. That's not my point here. My point is, is what happens to people that they've never experienced before, they're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they talk a lot about that with um, professional athletes. Right. That they – have such success and they've never been that successful. They've never had those types of means before mm-hmm. and how sadly they actually get taken advantage of by a lot of people who are managing, quote, managing their money and it, it turns into kind of a mess for them and they realize because they, they weren't financially literate at the outset mm-hmm. that they sometimes end up with nothing. Because they've been so many, taken many, advantage many, many of, right. which is really sad. And wasn't it um, wasn't it Michael Jordan? We were just talking about this last year. Where about um, people think a million dollars is a oh, lot of money? Sha- Shaquille O'Neal. Sha- Shaquille, yeah, Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille yeah. O'Neal. Yeah, he thought he was really cool. He was on uh, that guy. Uh, he's on Sunday nights. Uh, Graham Graham Bessinger. Okay. Graham, Graham Bessinger, and he, he dealt. He he, in, he interviewed five top athletes. Who had made a lot, just tons of money? Of course, Shaq O'Neal is Shaquille. They call him Shaq. Yeah, people call him Shaq. Okay, um, Shaquille O'Neal. He said his first million dollar check. Um, <laughs> he said he got a million dollars for doing a commercial, I think. And um, he said, "I went out and I bought myself uh, a Bentley." And he said, "And that was three hundred thousand dollars." He said, "I drove home." And he said, my dad said to me, well, where's mine? <laughs> and he said, so I went and took him back to the dealership and I bought my dad a Bentley and that was $300,000. And he said, and then, and then I might have the, the, the currency amounts wrong, but I'm pretty sure I, let's say 350, uh, 3350. And then he said, then when I came home, uh, my mom wanted one. And so we bought her a little, little junior sports car. And he said, the whole million dollars was spent. <laughs> He said, nobody ever told me about taxes. Right. And he said, then the tax man cometh. He didn't say it that way, but that's what I said. Tax man came or he came time to pay his taxes. And he said, and then when I realized I had, I had, I used to have a million dollars and I had nothing really to show for it but cars and I couldn't pay my taxes. I thought to myself, I need a financial planner and I need to learn about money. Mm-hmm. He says, and I need to become, um, Intelligent, have to have an IQ. Financially literate. But thank you. Financially literate about about money. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I did. And he said, see all this jewelry I wear? It's all fake. He said, <laughs> I, don't, he said I don't put money into expensive That's jewelry. And it, it was interesting to hear these guys talk. And there was other ones on the show too. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember all five, but I remember him. Yeah. It's devastating yeah. to hear those stories because a lot of them are coming from very disadvantaged, disenfranchised right. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And um, even under the best circumstances with our education system, we're not teaching people how to be financi- financially literate. I don't know what we're teaching them, but mm-hmm. we're not teaching them <laughs> basic things. They're um, learning how to balance a checkbook even or home act. They don't have that anymore. But, um, you know, they're coming from already this disadvantaged place and then they're thrust into this spotlight and limelight and all of this fame. It's got to be very disorienting. And, and you, intoxicating and all that. Yeah. And to trust people like a financial planner and then they end up in, in these other situations and then they're punched in the face because right. they don't plan. <laughs> it, it didn't happen the way that they thought it was going to. And, and that's really um, and that was really, really unfortunate. Stunning was. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so with the um, possibility that she walks out of this casino, she's had all of this big surprise. She's super excited about it. Um, did she say anything else about? No, and, and I didn't want to go into. Uh, actually, I didn't want to hear a, a sad end into the story. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, That's the point. many many times it is. She was happy that day, and I, yeah. I think she did walk out of the casino with the money. I know she did, and um, she she got whether she went back and so forth. I don't know. Okay, did she just walk in to play that one game? No, or? I don't know. I, so I don't know. Penny slots and ten thousand dollars. That's yeah. I said to him, I, I'm so ignorant about casinos. I said, I said, well, do you sit at a machine and put pennies in a machine? She said, oh, no, no, no. You you give them your credit card and then you oh. take they take <laughs> they take twenty dollars at a time and you, you're playing twenty dollars at a time with pennies, but you're making multiple bets and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, they figured out a way to you know part you from, with your money really quickly at one penny at a time. Right. <laughs> um, so to that idea with these professional athletes or how it happens just to regular people all the time that you're punched in the face, I was listening to um, a Grant Cardone live episode. It was a couple weeks ago. And for the people who are not familiar with Grant Cardone, um, he's very like rich dad, poor dad. Um, he's wrote this book called 10X, which my theory as a former Dale Carnegie instructor is that he took Dale Carnegie learned about 10 times more enthusiasm and then branded into a book, which is very smart. I don't know that that's the case, right. but I, I believe that that's probably the case. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a great book. Um, I think I gave you that you book. And um, he's a sales guy, finance guy, and I think it, um, he took a lot of cues also from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, buy assets and mm-hmm. not have a bunch of liabilities and then use that money to fund the rest of your life instead of, you know, buying things that are liabilities, blah, blah, blah. But um, private jet, condos everywhere, tons of money, tons of just flash, right? And on this episode, somebody wrote in and it was like, well, what if you lose it all tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? And he talked a lot about how like, okay, well, what do I do? I go back on offense, but by the way, I'm always on offense Mm -hmm. because I live my life on offense because I'm always trying to stay on top of it. Mm -hmm. But then I liquidate and I have a strategy. But what I don't do is I don't freak out. I don't panic. I don't lose control because I realize that because I did this one time – I can do it again. Right. And even Mark Cuban talks about that, right? Like he realizes that there was probably an element of luck mm-hmm. that happened to him. Like, you know, he worked very hard to get where he is, but he also rec- recognized that if you're a billionaire one time and you somehow lose it all, the chances that in, you know, at 60 or 50, you can become a billionaire again, maybe would not be as high. But that he would go immediately back to work and he'd get a sales job right? and a bartending job is what he said. Really? Yeah. Mark Cuban yeah. said he'd get a job attending bar mm-hmm. and get a sales job and go back to work. And and even that's interesting, right? Like you think about somebody like Mark Cuban and think here he is. He's saying I'll get a sales job. Right. He's not even saying I'll start another company, which to mm-hmm. me is this level of humility that's really brilliant and really wonderful. Right. Because who would think Mark Cuban is ever going to ask anybody for a job? But he's mentally not in the place where he thinks he's too good to have a job. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Les Brown talks well, about that also. When we have all these dreams that we want to achieve and we do achieve, he said you'll find that the struggle 
is more important than the dream you have. Mm -hmm. And actually the struggle becomes the dream, which Mm -hmm. is what you're talking about with Mark Cuban. Because once he's already done that struggle, he already knows, he already knows how, how to, to achieve the dream. So you just have to keep struggling. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's the key, really, is you just keep fighting. You keep working. You keep believing. You keep acting. Uh, you keep uh, working. Right. And the number four, that it's hard and that mm-hmm. it's the struggle, it reminds me of this sort of this motto in Bright Line Eating that I'm reading this book and following these people in these groups and they say, is this hard? Yes, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Choose your hard. Mm-hmm. So for the people who are following this bright line eating, and it could be any other thing, you know, being on any lifestyle change is hard, even if it's not a diet, even if you're somebody who is diabetic and you're trying to not have your leg amputated, you've got to make some really severe changes right. that are going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And what is which thing is harder? Is it harder to stop eating candy and sugar and refined carbohydrates or is it hard to have one leg? <laughs> right. Choose your hard. Right. Because it's all hard and it's not going to necessarily get easier. Maybe it will get easier because of automaticity and repetition and discipline and you start to realize the struggle is the dream, mm-hmm. that it's worth it. Right. So then it doesn't feel so hard. But when I read that, that choose your hard because there's all kinds of things that are hard. This right. is None of this is easy. None right. of life is really easy. Right. Um, even on like the best day, choose your hard because it's all going to be hard. And if you have a menu of hard things to choose from, which is the one that's worth it? Mm-hmm. Because – it's not going to be easy. It's going to be worth it. Well, that, I guess that's where it brings us back around to where we introduced the topic today. It's possible. So what it is what is it that you're looking for, not you, Stacey, but the people that are listening to us, what is what is your dream? What's what's possible for you that you're not doing right now that you wish you were doing right now, that you know you can do right now, but you, nobody's really challenged you to do or motivated you to do it? You've been thinking, sitting on the sidelines, on the bench, on the fence, and looking at that and thinking, well, how do these people do this? It, it just makes they make it look so easy, and it's not. It you can make it look easy, and they, and the more you do it, the easier it does get. But at the same time, it, it's always hard because there's always someone there to steal your dream or to compete with you or life Murphy's law, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, and um, someone said Murphy was an optimist, <laughs> so I don't know about that. But he well, and even I don't know if it's in the Les Brown uh, it's possible talk, but he talks about Murphy that Murphy is yeah, yeah. going to come around and Murphy is going to do this and that, and Murphy's always kind of right behind you. But that that idea is there, and that it's going to be about you doing a handful of things if we were going to recap the entire discussion. So it's that you to figure out that it's possible, you figure out that it's necessary, then you hopefully find people who are also thinking that for you, that you're running away from the people who are not supportive. Mm-hmm. Oh, or, they'll, you'll be attracted to those people and they'll be attracted to you. They mm-hmm. really will be. Those negative people will leave your life mm-hmm. or you'll leave them, but they'll right. be out of your life and you'll find like-minded people. There's no mm-hmm. question. Yeah, and and to not take it personally. So, out of all of the books that I've read, and, and you know, I'm not like some kind of like walking library, but I do try to read a lot of books. And throughout my adult life, I would say if I had to choose one book, which is the most important book I've ever read, it would be The Four Agreements. Mm. And I would hope that everybody would read a copy of The Four Agreements and and really read it and read it with time to 
pay attention to it and think about it because it's very contrary to how culture sort of makes us think. It's a little bit esoteric. So some people will be like, oh, that's too new age for me or it's very yoga-like. It's really not. It's it's very simple. So the four agreements are don't take anything personally. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. Don't make assumptions. Very good. Be impeccable with your word mm-hmm. and always do your best. And I actually have them out of order and there's a reason why he writes them in the order – the first one is actually be impeccable with your word because mm-hmm. if you're not impeccable with your word, you can't do the other agreements. But he spends a lot of time just on these four simple ideas that we are domesticated, going back to what we talked about earlier in the program, that we're domesticated to behave and that we're domesticated to act, think, look and behave a certain way and that the human creature is really just an animal that we have all trained to behave in certain types of what's acceptable. So we Mm. have agreements in our culture and in Mm. our society about what is correct and what is not. Mm. And one of those agreements is that people always love to take things personally. Mm. And if you can stop taking things personally, for me, that was the biggest out of all of it. And the book honestly changed my life. When you can stop taking things personally and you can do these other three agreements, it takes so much drama and nonsense and soul-sucking stuff off the table. Mm -hmm. And it really helps you crystallize quickly what's important and what you can control and what you can't control. And if you really are trying to do something – and you face a lot of criticism or naysaying from other people, don't take that personally. There's a reason why people are saying that, and that's because they're domesticated, and that's because they're fearful, which we talked a lot about in either the last podcast or the one before, the power and the destruction of fear. Yeah, six basic fears. Let's cover them again because I think I've memorized them now. Oh, do you have them? The fear of poverty, the fear of criticism, the fear of loss of love, the fear of ill health, the fear of old age, and the fear of death. Those are, according to Napoleon Hill, your six basic fears. And some people are plagued with all, depending on what, how old you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also some people are plagued with just one or two, but everybody faces them at one time in their life or another if they live long enough. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. And just the idea that, you know, when somebody's going to reject your goal and say, you can't do that, you can't have that dream, using the woman from the Facebook group, she wants to lose 150 pounds. Well, that probably shines a light on her mother mm-hmm. and the things that her mother doesn't like about herself or her, the things that her mother would have to change that her mother doesn't want to change just mm-hmm. to accommodate what her daughter is doing. And so when somebody is criticizing you for your goal or your dream, that is 100% about them. Mm-hmm. It is 0% about you. And that's all of their baggage and all of their projection and all of their fear. And you have to be able to create a container for that so that you can really recognize that that's about them and that's not about you and that you don't even have to be hurt by them not supporting you. They're not obligated to support you. They're not obligated to understand you. Nobody owes you anything. Um and it, it, it can be hurtful when the people that you love and trust don't support you. Mm-hmm. But to really be able to build a container for that and to say, this is really their issue. This is not my issue. And 
then if you can add a layer on top of it, which is this idea of empathy, which is to say, I recognize and I see that it's painful for them to watch me change. It's painful for them to watch me have a really big goal. It causes fear in them to see me do something that they would never try to do. And if you can come to that place, that's like that extra layer on top where you have that empathy. And empathy is not agreement. So empathy is not a validation of what the other person is saying or what other the other person is doing. It's just saying I, I see you and I see where you're coming from. I can understand your position. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to really take that in. And when you cannot be hurt – by the idea that they're not going to support you and that they're not going to go with you and that they're not going to maybe even when you get there celebrate with you, there's still a lot of power in that because that's the freedom. You haven't put the keys of your happiness or your freedom in their pocket. You've taken ownership of that. You've taken responsibility for it and you've made it possible for you to go on and there's a lot of personal freedom and power in that. To expand on the idea of the four agreements, um, the idea of doing your best is something that I think a lot of people don't give themselves credit for. So if they're going to set a goal, which I think is what Les Brown is talking about, is that it's possible. I'm not saying to you today that you need to commit that you're going to run the four-minute mile. I just want you to say it's possible that you could do it. And all if along that, that if way, that were what your goal was, right, right, and then you'd have to go about figuring out how to do that, right. right, and and with that, parallel to that is this idea with the four agreements: you do your best, right, and, and every day you have this chance. It would be a seven-minute mile, <laughs> you right? Me? And I don't think I could even run a ten-minute mile right now. I, mm-hmm. I what I used to run, but not anymore at my age. But mm-hmm. that's not an excuse, or that's not a reason. It's an excuse, or. The, so with the the idea of doing your best, you're showing up every day. You're putting in the time. It's okay that you're not getting to the goal that day. It's okay that you're not getting there 100%. If you've been impeccable with your word, mm-hmm. because that was the first agreement, that you were going to say everything or anything or this is possible. This is my goal. I believe that it's possible. That's the power of your word. So your word is incredibly powerful, which – I don't think people understand either that the things that you say out loud or the things that you say to yourself are incredibly powerful. They're everything that we yes. say, both in, internally and externally. And mm-hmm. when we and we do when we do say it externally, it puts mm-hmm. it puts a power in that. It puts that out to the universe. And I don't mean to sound too ethereal about that, but mm-hmm. it's really true. And the Bible says we're going to be accountable for every word we utter. Mm-hmm. But the reality of what we say is is out of our heart and our mind and the, mm-hmm. the abundance of our heart the mouth speaketh. Mm-hmm. And so what's in our heart, what's in our mind comes out both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. I want to read a little quote that I, I was looking for on my phone while you were talking. I got this from your brother John one day, and he sends me uh, positive messages along with you and others that do it in the family too, Stacey. But uh, this is from Napoleon Hill. He wrote Think and Grow Rich and other books. Uh, there's an abundance of everything for the person who knows what they want. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read that again. There's, abund- there's an abundance of everything for the person who knows what they want. And it gets back to that shortage mentality we talked about, or the abundant mentality a couple weeks ago, it ties into what we're saying today. What is it you want? What, what, what's your dream? What's your goal? What's your deadline? What's your aspiration? And there's an abundance of it out there. And someone's going to get it. Right. So why shouldn't it be you? Exactly. 
There's no reason it shouldn't be you. And if somebody tells you that there's a reason for it, you need to go find some other people to talk to because it's out there. Somebody will do it. Someone will find it. Someone will capitalize on it and and not in a negative way. It is there to be had. And if it's out there, why should you not be the person who's able to seize it? And run with it and have a really great experience and have a really great life. There's no reason. Right. There's no reason. So with that, we're up for our time. I think next week we should talk about manifestation. Okay. And the power of your word and creating your life with your words. We'll do that. All right. This is Doc Sloan with Stacy and my my wife in the the studio saying I've never had a bad day in my life. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.